I think if you get enough engineers in a room and enough coffee or beer, you could solve most problems. It's mostly, are you solving the right problem? Or, you know, are you framing the problem in a manner that you're, you know, the solution actually makes sense? Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Sri Ragunathan, a neuroengineering pioneer and founder of Noctrix Health. Sri has been leading his team in the development of innovative solutions to improve the lives of patients with neurological disorders like restless leg syndrome, aiming to level the playing field between medical devices and pharmaceuticals and patient care. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, in the medical device industry, need to have products come with much lower friction than want to have products. Focusing on the unmet patient needs rather than trying to create a new market for your solution will often yield much better commercial results. Second, surround yourself with talented, insightful people who are not afraid to challenge your assumptions. This type of high-performing team can help you navigate risks and offer fresh ideas to drive your venture forward. Third, it is crucial to validate the scale of the problem and demonstrate your device's capacity to solve it. This not only manifests the true value of your solution, but also paves the way for its reception, which is key to attracting the right investors. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we just released the latest edition of MedSider Mentors Volume 3, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Jim Persley, CEO of Hinge Health, Carol Burns, CEO of Cajun Vascular, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups of the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Nadine Yared, CEO of CVRX, Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, Shree, welcome to MedSider. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Scott. Good to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, likewise. And uh, it was interesting in the, in the pre-show, the pre we were, you know, jamming a little bit about backgrounds. And uh, as is the case, uh, a lot of times, right, we know we know a lot of the, a lot of the same people, right, um, in this small little uh, med tech world. But uh, with that said, um, I'm looking forward to this conversation, um, especially considering the device that you're developing has kind of, a, a, you know, a consumer flair, a consumer bent towards it. I'm, I'm sort of a personally passionate about these these areas of uh, of med tech. So uh, with that said, though, before we get, go too deep on company, the device that you're uh, you're in the process of launching, give us a, you know, an elevator pitch for your kind of professional background uh, leading up to taking on the, the CEO role of uh, uh, Noctrix. Sure. Uh, and, and pleasure to be here and talk to you, Scott. This is fantastic. It, it's always good to see passionate entrepreneurs and you've put together a great forum and a great you know, sort of a podium to highlight what goes on behind the scenes in MedTech. So thank you for doing that. Very excited to have this conversation with you. I am an engineer by training. So I, uh, uh, I like to think I am, but I'm reminded I was a 
an electrical engineer and uh, used to design circuits and you know uh, circuits that went into cell phones and ASIC design is you know what I used to do and I really got intrigued by uh, by music and neuroscience so it was most mostly you know hey how does the brain kind of perceive music and how do you know when something's key off key you know I used to dabble in music in college and uh, got really intrigued to where I got my PhD in neuroengineering. So I figured out, well, neurons are just circuits. They just turn on and off. So how, how hard can this be? It turns out that was, uh, it was way harder than I thought it would be. But uh, it, was a, it was a great time getting to apply some of the electrical engineering skill sets into developing implantable devices. Uh, back then, it was in you know, mice and rats. And we designed devices that would detect seizures and suppress seizures. And then I worked in industry for a while. I was designing uh, vagus nerve stimulators for patients with epilepsy, uh, tin can on a lead that goes inside your body. We worked on some really cool algorithms to make it responsive and you know, turn on and off when it detected seizures. And uh, across the board, what was frustrating for me to see was that the number of patients that could benefit from these game-changing therapies were really getting it after they'd failed every possible medication because it was understandably risky. It was a surgery. It was an implant. So to your point earlier, this whole consumer aspect of medtech is very exciting to me because it now presents, you know, medical devices as potentially a true alternative or, you know, at least on the same level playing ground as a, a pharmaceutical option, uh, which I think could be a game changer in the future. When I was a, this was back when I was in industry, I came across this program at Stanford called Stanford Biodesign. And this is a, uh, really bringing together engineers and folks from uh, the, the business side of the fence and doctors. They got to quit their jobs, spend a full 12 months on campus at Stanford and you know, not worry about solving problems, but really worrying about what's worth solving. You know, what is truly an unmet need working with a business school? So I did that and that was a fantastic experience. We were observing in, the, in one of many areas, which was sleep and uh, came across, you know, restless leg syndrome when, when I was a, uh, observing a bunch of patients that were being studied overnight, being assessed for sleep apnea. And I had never heard of RLS uh, prior to that. I'd worked about 12, maybe 14 years in neurology, uh, epilepsy, Parkinson's, depression, nothing about RLS. I just thought, hey, that's when you shake your feet under a table, maybe? Is it restless legs? What is that? And I was shocked uh, by what we were able to dig up and find out, and find out that you know 25 million adults uh, had RLS in the U.S. and, you know, about a third of them were on Parkinson's drugs to treat RLS, dopaminergic agonists, basically. And uh, the mechanisms were very, very neurological to me. And that really got us very excited about potentially coming up with a uh, medical device solution for RLS. And it also played well into my passion of saying, hey, why can't we get med devices to the same platform uh, as a pharmaceutical. And this presented sort of a golden opportunity, one that I've rarely ever seen before where patients, of course, are like, hey, you know, where can I get something that's not a drug? Or, you know, my drugs aren't working. And physicians are like, well, I actually kind of hate what I prescribe to these patients. I, I wish I had a better option. So that push in the pool kind of naturally existed in the market, which is uh, which was very rare to me personally. And that's really how we got started with uh, Noctrix and starting to pursue an angle on restless leg syndrome. Got it. That's that's super. That's super helpful. And uh, in your bio, you, you you forgot to mention that you're you're a Purdue Boilermaker. 
right? I oh, mean, that's right. <laughs> that's just, that's right. I always like this to call is it a good time I... to mention that. Yeah, yeah because right. uh, we we did have a pretty good basketball season, or except for the the one game where we disappeared, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I still watch my Big Ten. So that's proud right. Boilermaker for sure. That's right. Whenever I see um, you know someone with an engineering degree from Purdue, I always know they're pretty legit, right? It's a it's a, it's a, it's a re- <laughs> really solid, really solid engineering school um, for sure. But uh, but yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. So Noctrix spun out of of the Stanford Biodesign Program. Huh? I had no idea that RLS or Restless Leg Syndrome was this big, like the prevalence was that high. I mean, I've heard of it loosely, but not overly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I never really spent much time kind of you know lear- learning about it. So your device, right? Which I you know in in the kind of when we were chatting before I hit the record button here. I said the NXT 100, right? But it's it's since rebranded. You know, you're in full on uh, launch mode yeah. as as Nidra. But tell us a little bit That's more right. about like, uh, you know, again, without going too far into the weeds, what does it do? Like, if I if I'm yeah. a patient, like hearing about this from my from my physician, you know, give me a give me a high level sense for kind of the mechanism. Sure. So RLS is a very clinical diagnosis. So most patients have come into a doctor and say, "Hey, I've got this urge to move my legs." And when I get up and walk or I kick my feet, I feel better. So that is the insight that we really teed into to say, well, what about movement or what about kicking your feet or what about walking, you know, makes you feel better, even if it's temporarily. We, in fact, had patients that said they had an exercise bike right by their bed. They would hop off bed, get on the exercise bike, go crazy for about five minutes and try to jump back onto bed and fall asleep. So we really started digging into that insight of that was really the hallmark of RLS, which distinguished it from a bunch of other kind of leg movements at night or things like that. We decided to say, well, what if we electrically stimulated the afferent nerves in your lower legs that basically told your spinal cord that your lower leg muscles are engaged, but they're not actually engaged. So, you know, could we, in other words, scratch this itch with electrical stimulation and trick your brain into thinking that your muscles are engaged and you're moving your feet and you can actually fall asleep naturally. Now, the key is to make, to do this in a way that doesn't actually, you know, cause the, the, pro, the, the paresthesias from stimulation to disrupt your sleep to begin with. So in some sense, the solution would be worse than the cure. The problem, you would have to stimulate in a manner that selectively hits the afferent nerves that is compliant with sleep, that patients can't feel the stimulation or it feels, you know, comfortable to them to be able to fall asleep. So that's the the hypothesis that we latched onto. And we looked into an assay that provoked RLS. It's called the Suggested Immobilization Test or SIT, where you get patients to sit on a, a bed with their legs stretched out at night. And basically patients with RLS, this is a torture test. They cannot sit there for long enough. And we played around with waveforms and nerve targets. And sure enough, you know, we wound up with a, uh, a nerve target that instantaneously relieved symptoms of RLS when we started electrically stimulating it. So the device was born from that insight. And today it's basically two leg-worn devices that you wrap around the common peroneal nerve that is uh, on the outside of your knee on both legs. And it stimulates patients wear it right before they go to bed. They turn it on. The device is uh, personally calibrated or titrated for each patient. So there is a, a fitting session that happens after they get a prescription from their physician. And once their settings are programmed into the device, they go back home and they get to use it uh, every night before they fall asleep. The device turns itself off, so they don't really have to take it off. Most patients fall asleep with the device on. And much like any device that is wearable, that is on your body, we could record a bunch of other parameters as well. 
uh, relating to objective and subjective measures of how the patient is sleeping. So this is a chronic in-home therapy that is uh, obtained via prescription. Most patients would pick this up from their sleep doctor, much like a CPAP for sleep apnea, and they would continue to use it uh, on an ongoing basis at home. Got it. And so it's, it's, it's requires a prescription. So is it covered and in, in, in reimbursed as well? Or is, it, is this a, a cash pay sort of uh, option right now for patients? So this is a brand new device entering a pharmaceutical space. So there is no predicate for a device in this space. We certainly seek, aim to seek insurance coverage for it. We believe that that's the best way to get market access, widespread market access across uh, not just the pay, populations that can afford it, but populations that need it. So we are seeking new uh, reimbursement codes and we're actively pulling together a full reimbursement team in-house. So as a company, we've decided to become a DME or a durable medical equipment uh, manufacturer. Well, we have our in-house billing. We have, we take care of appeals and prior odds and things like that up front to make sure that we uh, can get a designated code or a dedicated code for this thing. Got it. Got it. That, that's super helpful. And I think what a kind of a rewarding space to be in, right? Because um, as, as you mentioned, even before we hit the call record button, I had no idea that not, not only does, does RLS affect this many people, but how like severe yeah. the symptoms can really be. And for anyone that struggled with sleep, like even, even at a, like a reasonably like superficial level, it, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, these, these folks will go, what'd you, what'd you say months without like, you know, on very, very little sleep. That's absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, behind my desk right here is a, you know, we constantly get these from patients all the time. This is uh, you know, we have a very limited presence online and, you know, just press releases every now and then this is, you know, a lady from Michigan that has uh, written us a letter and hand signed that letter. Wow. Uh, huh. And she is 83 years old and she feels like, so she has struggled with RLS since she was a teenager and she was always told these are growing pains and, you know, I can get, I'm very frustrated with how little I can accomplish. She's 83 and she's just absolutely desperate. And she's like, I would love to get some more information and, you know, uh, sign up to get early access to the therapy. There's been, you know, the physicians we work with are phenomenal. I mean, they're absolutely, this is not just a job, it's a calling to them. They constantly forward some emails that they receive from patients that, you know, move our team to tears. It's just, you know, individual patient stories that say, hey, you know, my doc thinks I'm psychotic. You know, my husband forced me into a car to take me to the hospital, to the ER, and they had to give me, you know, benzos to calm me down. And it's, I have anxiety, but it's not because I'm anxious. It's because I have RLS and I, I just need to, you know, get something that is not, you know, making my symptoms worse. And unfortunately, the mainstay of treatment for, for RLS is uh, dopaminergic agonists. These come from the Parkinson's world, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But dopamine, unlike in PD, in the case of RLS, have been, they've been known to make the disease worse over time. In that, you know, if your symptoms used to start at bedtime and, you know, your bedtime used to be seven or eight o'clock or nine o'clock, those symptoms would start earlier and earlier and earlier, and you need more and more and more dopamine. And this is a phenomenon that's fairly well documented called augmentation, uh, where patients need more dopamine over time. And their symptoms now start at 4 p.m., 3 p.m., 2 p.m. And gosh, in our trial, we've had patients that use it in the afternoon because they have symptoms in the afternoon. 
And getting them off of dopamine is incredibly challenging. So much so that now the standard of care guidelines are finally being updated to where dopaminergic agonists are no longer becoming or recommended as first-line treatment for RLS. So slowly but surely, there's a change, but it's it's incredibly impactful to work with, you know, work with a device and a therapy and a team, especially for patients that uh, you could see the impact very, very tangibly in a very short period of time. Our trials are you know, eight weeks, 16 weeks. So within that time period, you, you actually get some pretty life-changing uh, quotes and feedback from the patients, which is incredibly compelling and motivating for the clinical team and the rest of the company. Right, right. Well, that's cool. It's, it's one of the, the one of the reasons uh, I'm kind of personally passionate about these. You know, the, like I said before, these devices that have a, a little bit of a more consumer bank because you're you're that much closer, right, to the to the patient or you know the person, the human being. You know, in this in this instance, uh, that's probably one of the most rewarding aspects of working in this space. It could be hard. It could be brutal. It can be like you know feeling like you're playing the game on hard mode all the time. But it is you know you're making a, a pretty significant impact, right, on on someone's life, which is uh, which is really really cool. Hands so, down, the number yeah. one perk of my job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. So, well, cool. Um, and and then, and then just real quick before we kind of uh, you know sort of rewind the clock and learn a little bit more about you know some some cross functional areas of the of the company and what you've learned kind of along the way building up uh, uh Notrix. But uh, you guys are in launch mode, right? You're you're launching the device as we speak. Correct. So we actually uh, got our FDA green light. We were a de novo five ten k. So we got our de novo granted about five weeks ago to date. Okay. And uh, the team has been scrambling. We've been building our commercial. Uh, team as we speak. And uh, we are about to start what we're calling a controlled release over the next 12 months in the US, where we'll be available in a, a, a limited number of sites. And we plan to you know, start working out the kinks and you know, start scaling from there. But we're going to use the first 12 months really to make sure that we have enough product, we have uh, the ability to service patients and uh, clinics appropriately. And we have the systems in place to scale from that point forward. And of course, obtain coverage, uh, reimbursement codes and coverage for the therapy. Cool. That's awesome. So we're recording this in late Q3, you know, and so it sounds like the the de novo, uh, the de novo came through uh, uh, positively, I guess, in kind of mid-, mid Late mid Q2. Late Q2. Okay. Got it. Got it. Cool. <laughs> you awesome. just, you scared me there. That's whole, <laughs> oh, we're in late Q2. That's right. That's right. I said late Q3. Yeah. My, my, uh, I'm off here. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So we're recording this in late Q2. So June, June of 23. So you, if you're listening that's to right. this app, this conversation after the fact, you get, got, got a sense for, uh, for when, uh, you know, Noct- Noctrix got the, um, the stamp of approval from, from FDA. So, Thinking back to some of the earlier versions, right? You're, you're probably coming out of the Stanford Biodesign program. You have a sense, kind of maybe for for where this is headed. But you know, looking back, are, are there a few things that you learned through that those you know those early iterations, kind of going from alpha to beta, uh, that either you would have done differently, or maybe even things that you really got right? You know, trying to you know move quickly, but also you know be capital efficient at the same time. Yeah, I think if I, gosh, I think the one thing that I keep going back to is that. You have to be absolutely sure about, you know, getting that unmet need right. And that's mm-hmm. something that programs like Stanford Biodesign do very, very well. It, it, from day one to today in the company, you know, we've gone through, we've tried various solutions. We've changed our, you know, clinical trial strategy. Some we've fine-tuned a lot of things. The one thing that you absolutely cannot change is your unmet need. It's like, that's, that's remain remained our North Star and said like, and that better be a, a big, strong, 
unmet need that has a huge market because you could change everything else around that. You could change your, your team, your product, your technology. You can't change the problem. So uh, if you've got a solid problem that you're working on and that unmet need will stand the test of time, there's not much to worry about in terms of, you know, there's always concern. Should I be doing more PR? Should, should there be a media blitz? You know, should I go out and say, this is a stealth company doing X or Y or Z? I always go back to say, remember that to your point, you know, we're in a market to serve, right? So ultimately patient has to be, how many patients can you get this on? How many patients' lives can you change? Those are the metrics that matter. And that strong unmet need with a big market, it rarely needs a ton of publicity or hype or, you know, we have to remember that we're in a market where things are needs, not wants. People do want the latest iPhone, the latest Apple Watch and all of that, but Nobody wants a new pacemaker, right? It's, it's a need. And you know, making sure that you focus and spend as much time as possible understanding what that unmet need is and who it is an unmet need uh, for really allows the rest of the operation to go smoothly. So the, the early part may take longer in making sure that you vetted this out, and uh, but it pays dividends on the back end because our clinical trial outcomes really matched up with what our you know reimbursement needs are and our clinical trial outcomes matched up with what regulatory wanted to see. So there was a lot of stakeholder alignment that winds up happening if you do spend that time up front. I would say the the other <clears throat> thing that I've been fortunate and lucky to have is just surrounding yourself with amazing people. Like there there are four million reasons why companies can fail. And, and as I'm sure as an entrepreneur yourself, you, you're, you're living this and there's, there's, there's risks every turn. But having people around you that are really, they bring out the best in you and they're constantly making you, you know, pause and think about like, oh, there is another viewpoint here. And, you know, giving them skin in the game and, you know, setting ego aside, rolling up your sleeves and say, no job's too small. You know, you're going to have to be involved in every part of building this company. I think to me, those two things really help early days of Noctrix is to, I was fortunate to have a lot of people around, some people now that I work with today, including you know my founding team and some of my management today, and just mentors and advisors that mm-hmm. offered free advice. And I would sit down, you know, buy them a coffee or a beer and you know have a conversation about, hey, how'd you do it? You know, how did you do X or Y or Z? And the amount of time that they would be willing to take to sit down and talk to you about this, it, it's just invaluable. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's something that I couldn't even put a value on it and I would love to give back in uh, any any way or shape that I can. Uh, I think those made a big difference early days in my first. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CBRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.